Welcome to another episode of NEALT Rewind, the podcast of the NEALT Institute for War, Holocaust and Genocide Studies. My name is Oliver Maurik and in this episode I interview Professor Kerstin von Lingen, who specializes in the study of war crimes. In October 2018, she was appointed interim professor at the Department of History at Heidelberg University. And in this interview, we talk about the Tokyo Tribunal. Eleven national teams were sent to Tokyo between 1946 and 1948 to bring about justice in the aftermath of the Pacific War. And to be honest, I am actually really fascinated by this topic. I mean, organizing a trial that big after such a violent period in which the balance of power has completely changed, this must have been quite a task. How did this work? I mean, with so many different national policies and legal traditions. And how did the judges got selected? And can we see the trials as just a way of finding justice after a period of war? Or was it also politics to shape a new future in which the Allies would play a dominant role? And what were the lessons of the Tokyo Tribunal? And can we still see traces of it in today's tribunals? Kerstin von Lingen, uh, you've invited me at this really nice Airbnb in Leiden. How are you today? Oh, I'm really fine. This yeah. is my first time really in the Netherlands. I know everybody's making fun of me that I've never made it from Germany to the Netherlands. So for <laughs> some reason, far. all my wonderful colleagues always come to Germany. So. Yeah. Oh. But this is my first time in Leiden and I'm really, really happy and pleased to be here. Ah, good yeah. to hear. Uh, yeah, you just got this amazing position at the University of Vienna as a professor of contemporary history, right? Yes, that's true. I've just started in March at the University of Vienna, so I'm very much looking forward uh, uh, to yeah, both main tasks they are doing as a professor. So it's teaching and it's obviously also doing research. So yeah. What I've, topics are you going to focus on? Well, I'm very interested in the questions of um, displaced persons, repatriation and resettlement. So I think uh, this is definitely going to be uh, one of the key fields of research in the next years. And obviously I did already uh, focus on war crime trials, so I'll also continue this. Um, and I'm very much um, interested in memory politics in Europe as in Asia, so I would like to continue with the comparative perspective uh, on that. Um, because we, we used to, to focus so often only on Europe, because Europe already is quite diverse in memory politics, but if we start to see the Second World War more as a global conflict, then we have obviously also a very, very interesting picture of global memory politics emerging from the Second World War. Yeah. So I found that interesting and worth pursuing. Yeah, I can imagine. And before you worked at the Cluster of Excellence Asia and Europe in a Global Context at Heidelberg University, and you led the research group Transcultural Justice, Legal Flows and the Emergence of International Justice within the Asian War Crimes Trials of 1945-1954. That's true, that's true. Uh, maybe I have to explain first, what, uh, so, so people might think, what, what is transcultural justice? So, exactly. So transcultural yeah. uh, is a very Heidelberg term, so they, they, um, the theoretical focus of the whole cluster was on transculturality. Um, from a historical perspective, transculturality uh, would be the, the, the interaction uh, between the countries on a non-political and non-governmental level in a way. So we have international contacts, we also have transnational contacts, but sometimes transcultural contacts also matter. 
So what is the fascination of the Orient or of Asia for Westerners and, and what do they bring back and what kind of concepts do maybe travel between the two continents. So the travel of ideas. Yeah, well, that's more the intellectual history part of transculturality, which I was very much interested in, uh, but others would maybe focus on film or on rituals or on practices. But however, I'm doing the history part and um, just to give you one example. So if we are talking about transcultural justice, I'm. Um, I'm always taking uh, the Tokyo Tribunal as an example. As you know, we don't only have the Nuremberg trial after the Second World War against the Nazis, yeah. but we also have a trial against the Japanese elite in Tokyo, um, the Tokyo trial. And um, in Nuremberg we had four judges from four countries and in Tokyo we have 11 judges from 11 countries. So you can see this, this is really a transcultural affair in Tokyo because you have the let's say the big allies, obviously the Americans, the British, who a bit dominate the whole story, the Soviets, uh, but then uh, you have China, uh, which was a major ally, and then due to the civil war is, is a bit declined, let's say in status. Yeah. Then you have the smaller countries as France, uh, the Netherlands, um, New Zealand, Australia, um, India, the Philippines, and they are also judges uh, in Tokyo. And, and how do they get along each other? And you have problems already with the, with the question of what kind of legal grounds to use. So you have the continental European traditions, then you have the Anglo-Saxon law, uh, then the way a trial in court is conducted is different in all these countries. Then maybe even the perception of what justice is and when you feel satisfied by it is a completely different um, um, endeavor so so in a way justice is already a cultural concept yeah. uh, for um, for the most part uh, you can't standardize it and they tried obviously in an international court to standardize it Maybe it's good to first give some basic information about the trials. What was the size of the trials? How many people got persecuted? Can you say something of about course, that? Of course, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> we're always so into our topics that we think, oh, everybody knows. <laughs> so, um, so in a way, it's, it's two fields. So one is, um, as in Europe, it's the same. So you have one international trial, which is in Europe, called the Nuremberg trial. And in Asia, it's the Tokyo trial. So the Nuremberg trial and the Tokyo trial is only against the main defendants. It's 24 in Nuremberg and 28 in Japan. So this is the military elite, the leading elite, the ministers, um, yeah, the, the, the big names, let's put it like that. And then, in both theatres of war, you have the so-called national trials. So the French holding trials, the British holding trials, the Polish holding trials, the Dutch holding trials, the Belgians. So in all countries in Europe, there are national trials against Nazi perpetrators of any kind. And in some countries in Europe, the main focus then is laid on collaboration. For example, in the Netherlands. So you have much more trials in the Netherlands against Dutch collaborators with Nazi rule than you have against actually Nazi perpetrators, commanders or, or police officers. That's interesting, obviously. For Asia, we have also national trials. So, for example, the 11 nations involved in Tokyo all had the right to have national trials in their countries. So, um, but, but it, doesn't, it didn't, um, didn't really take place in all the countries, and I'll tell you why in a minute. 
So if you look at the instrument of surrender in the Pacific, it's 11 countries which signed it. So it's obviously the US, the British, the Soviets, the French, the Dutch, um, the Australians, the Canadians, the New Zealanders, the Philippines, the Indians, did I say China? So China is 11. So um, national trials were only held by those really affected by Japanese occupation. So obviously there's no New Zealand trial against mm -hmm. occupation, but there are New Zealandish trials uh, when it comes to crimes against prisoners of war, which came from New Zealand. So you have uh, different, uh, let's say, fields of, uh, of ch or different charges. And the largest program against uh, Japanese officers uh, came from the Australian government, um, which focused um, on a different set of crimes. So not only crimes against prisoners of war, but also against uh, Asian civilians, um, against um, slave labor workers. Uh, they are called Romusha. Mm -hmm. So these are the different, uh, let's say, fields involved. So we have Australian trials, we have British trials, we have Dutch trials, we have French trials, we have Chinese trials. We even have one Soviet trial against Japanese defendants. There are actually three types of crimes here, right? So you just mentioned crimes against humanity and then we also have war crimes and crimes against peace. Can you say something about it? What's, what's the difference between those? Um, yes, of course. Uh, so crimes against peace um, is, is also called the crime of aggression, so of starting the war. So in a way, um, the Nuremberg trial as well as the Tokyo Tribunal are the two tribunals for those who the Allies thought had started the war. So this is the main leaders. It's military leaders, it's uh, political leaders who, who had driven the country into war with the Allies. Um, in Asia they even give letters to the trials. So we say class A war criminals. So class A is always crimes against peace. So the aggression crime is class A and this is only dealt with at Tokyo. Uh, then uh, the, what I call the national trials, let's say in French Indochina, in Dutch Indonesia, in the Philippines, in China, uh, they deal with the so-called BC trials. Uh, B is conventional war crimes and C is crimes against humanities. So these are crimes, uh, let's say actual atrocities taking place in these countries where the trials then later are held and where you have also a name of a perpetrator, let's say you have a general who ordered the massacre um, and you can bring that to trial. So in Asia we talk about class A war criminals all judged at Tokyo and the BC trials which are in the countries involved. And the international um, trials in Tokyo, so how did they choose the people? Ha, this is another very interesting, I could talk for, for hours now. And who were they of course, <laughs> were that the judges themselves or? Uh, the national equipes, so all these 11 teams uh, drafted indictments and drafted, let's say, defendant lists yeah. and then MacArthur was, uh, was finally taking the decisions, uh, or his team, obviously not he, personally, uh, who would be brought uh, to justice. However, uh, the problem was that um, they started preparing the Tokyo trial in January 46, and they started it in May. Um, and some countries were invited at a quite late stage. For example, India and the Philippines, I think, were invited 25th of April. And the trial started uh, 5th of May or something like that. Obviously, these two countries were absolutely not involved in 
deciding whom to bring to justice, but the others could at least have made, uh, let's say, written comments on it. Uh, but the core group is always uh, the Americans, the British, and to a lesser extent, the Australians. Yeah. Why the Australians? Obviously, the Pacific Theatre is an Australian theatre of war. Uh, if the Australians talk about the Second World War, it's the Pacific War. They had troops in Europe as well, but um, the Pacific War is the war experience for Australia and obviously they were very eager to play a more prominent international role. And now we come to, to a problem um, which is often overlooked um, in research but which I think is really important for many countries, uh, let's say, of the second line. If you are not American, if you are not Great Britain, so what do you do to, to voice your interest? It's good to have an international committee or to have an international body where you can engage. And, and for example, even today, we see the, the Swiss or even the Dutch leading such debates because this is a, a forum. It is, it is a platform where you can really uh, make ground and, and voice your ideas. And for Australia, this international trial at Tokyo was a, a really good occasion to show uh, we are taking the lead here and uh, we are bringing justice to the mm. whole region. And this is also one of the reasons why they had such a large war crime program. And countries as the Philippines and India, before the war they had not really a lot to say. Is there a specific reason that they were chosen now to participate in this context of trials? Uh, yes, in a, in a way, maybe in a nutshell you could say uh, they were chosen as a kind of um, acknowledgement of their military services uh, during the conflict. Obviously, many Indian soldiers served in the British Army and died uh, in the battles, uh, for example, Singapore, um, and also Indonesia, by the way. And uh, the Philippines itself um, was under American protection, not yet completely sovereign, and uh, obviously it suffered uh, a lot of military violence, as you think, the Battle of Manila, um, and then you have uh, also these uh, crimes against prisoners of war taking place. And they uh, were invited to attend the Tokyo trial with the judge, um, but it was, a, let's say, a political sign of recognition, and uh, maybe the Americans or British had underestimated that they would really uh, make use of it oh, yeah. and they thought they would just sit there and, and be, be quiet and they were not. So for example the Indian judge turned out uh, to be the nightmare of, of uh, the British ah, and American organizers. What did he do? Um, well he, he gave a dissenting voice and, and from the very first moment he said oh this is not a fair trial and uh, are we as a court entitled to bring Japanese to justice? Uh, yeah. Uh, we don't have legal precedents for crime of aggression in this regard. So they debated, for example, um, whether the Pact of Paris, or it's also called the Briand-Kellogg Pact of 29, yeah. was really valid because it condemns war of aggression, but Japan hadn't signed it. So uh, this is again a legal problem then, but you could say, okay, but it was accepted by the rest of the world, so yeah. it is the crime. So this was a bit the debate going on, and the Indian judge, um, uh, Ratabinot Pal, uh, Pal was very, um, very interested in debating these things, and he found immediately that at the Tokyo trial there was no room for debate. It was more or less you represent the voice of your country and, and you, you are the spokesperson of your government in a way, in, in a legal courtroom. And um, yeah, 
you even have a lot of uh, racist commentaries. If, if you look at the proceedings, you can really find uh, comments, for example, from the British uh, judge, or he writes letters home to his government, there, whoever choose this Calcutta judge uh, to come to Tokyo, he's, he's ruining our line of strategy and stuff like that. So um, this is very interesting. So he was more asking about the philosophical question about is this more politics for the future uh, and shaping the global context as, and the balance of power right now than it's about judgment. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, that was exactly his point. And, and obviously he, he would always um, go back to the point that he said, first we have a colonial war here yeah. and we have colonial powers in Asia which are still there and we are now sitting on judgment here in Tokyo. and. Um, we need, however, also to consider that the Japanese had promised the other Asian countries to free them from colonial rule, which is at first sight a, um, an, a respectable argument. Yeah. Yeah? Um, it, it didn't turn out well for, let's say, the slave laborers and the Romusha and whatever, but um, you have elites in these colonial countries who were pretty pr thankful for the Japanese to start the independence process in the way they did. They yeah. were strengthening political training, uh, they could have newspapers finally in their language, they, they could go to university, all things which the colonial powers had always tried to, to keep a bit under, yeah. under surveillance. And uh, so, um, after Japanese occupation for Asia, uh, it was impossible to go back to the colonial times. And I think this is one of the, the misperceptions, for example, of the French and the Dutch. When they returned to, to uh, the Pacific, they were a bit like, oh, we, we continue where we stopped in 1940 or 1942. And this, this was impossible. Yeah. But this is an interesting question that leads to the question, actually, how did the judges deal with this question of what is justice for the Japanese in a world where all sides have committed atrocities. How did they deal with that? Well, this is a philosophical question. I'm yeah. very interested in it as a historian, but uh, um, if you're a judge in an international court, of course you have not much uh, space to maneuver to debate these, these ethical questions. Um, I am, however, pretty sure that the judges were aware of this dilemma and they were debating it amongst themselves uh, but you have different um, you have different ways to deal with it so so Paul said okay I can't go with the majority uh, I see the need to condemn them uh, for their atrocities but I think we ne also need to discuss the other points so he had this dissenting judgment um, judge Bert Röhling from the Netherlands gave a dissenting judgment and uh, judge Henri Bernard from France also gave a dissenting judgment. So you have three dissenting judgments for different reasons, uh, but all voicing their criticism because there was no room to debate for that. Because in a way Tokyo was created by political leaders to start the post-war order in Asia. Um, with the hope to to uh, to give all the 11 countries involved uh, the chance to shape their positions and obviously what they do not want is then that you have a government with one position and you have a judge sitting in Tokyo doing the complete opposite exactly. yeah? yeah but this is what happens when you have academic debate yeah. obviously we have a lot of uh, uh, strands of argumentation and, and this is the interesting part of it and this is what we researched in our project so what are the different strands of argumentation and, and how was that also suppressed in a way so if we talk about the Netherlands again also Bert Röhling um, 
received several letters from his government saying that oh don't ruin our our standing with the other allies uh, we have agreed that this trial is important so uh, you are hindering justice in a way so, so quite quite open quite um, harsh letters which we we can't they are really incomprehensible today but if you see the situation of the time then you can also see the anxiousness maybe of the Hague uh, not to be set back in the third or fourth row uh, only because a judge is too independent yeah. there in Tokyo. So, so from a political power play position uh, they did not want an independent judge. From a moral position we are today very happy and say, yeah. oh, Ruling spoke up and he said exactly. this is not possible and, and yeah. we are proud of him in a way yeah, yeah. Uh, as academics and say yeah he he <laughs> he had a standpoint and yeah. he uh, and he fought it yeah uh, but uh, let's say from a political uh, point of view uh, ruling is a nightmare. This debate about justice, how did Japanese society react on these trials and the debates? Maybe in a nutshell again, um, while the trials were taking place, or the trial, the large trial in Tokyo, I think um, not so much was debated in the Japanese population as they were still very much concerned with, with daily struggles and, and building up new lives and houses and getting food and stuff like that. However, that changes. So uh, the longer the trial lasts, the more interest uh, you have and the more there is a starting debate on, on is this really justice or didn't they bring only scapegoats to trial and uh, for example on, on uh, several uh, of the defendants uh, there was a debate whether they were unjustly maybe uh, or, or as a substitute of somebody much more guilty uh, there in court and stuff like that. So. Um, and obviously for the debate in the 50s, uh, it is a bit like in Germany with the field marshals. So, so we have this debate about clemency, mm -hmm. uh, which came um, very early after 52. So 52 is for Japan uh, the San Francisco Treaty, which is the peace treaty with the Allies. And after that you have full sovereignty and obviously also sovereignty about your own people. So all people then imprisoned in Sugamo, which is the prison for Tokyo, for the uh, class A defendants, um, need then to be dealt with by the Japanese government. And obviously this is a very unpopular popular task. Uh, this, this American, let's say, hereditary that you have now these, these men in prison and you can't free them in one moment, obviously. Yeah. So this is also written in the Tokyo trial, you cannot release them. Uh, you need to debate their crimes against and you need to have a formal legal procedure. Yeah. So in a way what we see in 45 is um, a normative response to the crimes of the Second World War through court. And obviously we see also shortcomings um, and um, yeah, political entanglements which surround the trial, which, which give us today the feeling neither Nuremberg nor Tokyo were really free courts as we would see The Hague today, for example. On the other hand, maybe we can go on forever to debate now whether uh, The Hague is, exactly. is free in his judgment yeah. today if he judges Milosevic, because we, we, we still have um, what I call transcultural justice, uh, an expectation who's guilty and, and yeah. who should be brought to trial. That leads us actually to the question, uh, what were the lessons of Tokyo, the Tokyo tribunals for today's courts? Hmm. Were there any lessons? 
Um, I think uh, <laughs> uh, the allies uh, very thoroughly uh, analyzed the shortcomings. So let's say, uh, first of all, you started your debate today with me. So why does nobody know about the Tokyo trial while yeah. we all have heard about the Nuremberg trial? Uh, I think one of the things is very bluntly um, that it wasn't uh, really talked about uh, after it had finished. So it is a bit like it lasted three years and then everybody went home and never talked about it anymore. So um, I think from an allied perspective, Tokyo was seen a failure, a, a disaster. Yeah, You have 11 judges, three of them give a dissenting voice, uh, the others turn home frustrated. Um, okay, the defendants are brought to justice, seven are executed, but in a way, uh, uh, the, the question of atrocities in the Pacific War is not not ended uh, with this trial and, and they have a lot of debate and obviously you see the Cold War rivalries again, then you see all this decolonization struggle happening in Asia and you see that the national trials in the countries then involved also go badly because uh, of the very turbulent situation and context but also because of other shortcomings. Um, I don't know, stuff like the lack of personnel to, to be sent in courts in Indonesia or in Indochina uh, from the French side. This was really a problem. Yeah. Or see the Chinese case, um, while they were handled as main allies until 1944, you have then the civil war breaking out, Chiang Kai-shek uh, loses against Mao, and then the question of war crime trials is obviously not on the first uh, side of the agenda anymore. So, so the situation needs to calm down again. Yeah. So uh, in a way this um, perceived failure also um, is reflected by the fact that um, the proceedings were never published as in Nuremberg for example. Already in 1950 you have a 30-volume uh, series, the Nuremberg trials, which is in a way um, the narration of the triumph of allied justice over Nazi evil, if I can put it a bit polemically. So, and in the Pacific case, nobody took the money or the effort or whatever to print such proceedings until 81. Mm. So this is really late. Yeah. So for 40 years, nobody was talking anymore yeah. about this Tokyo trial. So now, by now, everything is open. You can study everything. But I think what they have learned is, as you said, to make it more transparent and, and give also researchers the chance yeah. to look at it. Um, and maybe um, for the listeners it would be interesting, so, so if you're interested in, in, in these, let's say, doku-fiction uh, kind of genre and, and like to watch films, there is a, um, a mini-series with four series on the Tokyo Trials, which you can see on Netflix. Ah, what's on it the, called? Uh, it's called Tokyo Trials. Oh, Tokyo Trials, yeah, of course. And it's uh, on these 11 judges. They're basically sitting only in one room in the hotel and they are always arguing with each other, <laughs> drinking tea, whatever. And you can see these deep conflict lines and uh, it's very interesting. So ah. I used to use that uh, in classes at university and we analyze uh, okay. the debates and and, uh, how they're dressed and because you can see the French guy is obviously the best looking man you've ever seen and uh, <laughs> it's very fashion. It's full of cliches. Yeah, it's yes. full of cliches. It's wonderful. <laughs> well, normally I always end with the question, do you have anything to recommend for our listeners, for example, scholarly uh, literature or maybe media, uh, uh, films or podcasts? Is there anything else besides the Netflix series that you would like to recommend? Maybe your own book 
So if you're interested in these 11 judges' biographies and, and the teams involved, so I, I can obviously recommend the book. It's called Transcultural Justice in Tokyo, um, which is uh, this uh, this idea. But uh, also from our other conference, we had one book um, with Palgrave, which was called Justice in Times of Turmoil. So it's these war crime trials in uh, um, uh, in the Pacific Theater, and uh, the second volume of this uh, book series was on collaboration and complicity, because I mentioned that before it was the main focus on all these national trials in Europe, but in Asia it, it is obviously a different debate to talk about collaboration, because if we talk about colonialism and about colonial subjects, then you have a very interesting philosoph philosophical question on whom you owe your loyalty to. And um, obviously, if you are a colonialized subject, your loyalty is still with your home country, which is maybe Indonesia at this point, and which is not the Netherlands. So how do you bring them to justice after the war for collaboration with the Japanese? Because maybe it was in the Indonesian interest to, uh, to I don't know, help the Japanese in this very speci specific moment and build railways for them or, or I don't know, uh, deliver them food or whatever kind of collaboration is under scrutiny here. So the question of collaboration is a different one in a colonial context or a post-colonial context than the question of collaboration, yeah. which is very clear-cut and involves national honor and identity if you look to Europe. So collaboration with the Nazis is, is the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Collaboration with the Japanese, if you are an Indonesian independence fighter, is maybe something which brings you even fame. And, uh, and we, is there a website? Uh, yeah, the website is still on, uh, on Heidelberg University, the Cluster of Excellence, nice. and the website is called Transcultural Justice. Now you know what we yeah. mean by that. Okay, thank you so much, Kerstin. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs>